The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. We've got less than two hours now before that Fed decision and the press conference with the chairman. Of course, I have the investment committee with me today to debate what the market reaction is likely to be, no matter what they say and do. Bryn Talkington with me, Jason Snipe as well, Surat Sethi and Joe Terranova. Let's check the markets uh, right now, give you an idea of where we are. Uh, as I said, a couple hours uh, ahead of uh, that key decision and then the newser. You've got the Dow good for about 146, 30,852. The S&P 500 is still below 3,900. We're watching that gain of one half of 1% today. And there is the two-year note yield. Look at it right there, 4% even. Uh, And that is the highest level there uh, since 2007, touching four for the first time since then. We're going to get into all of that and uh, certainly much more. I do first want to go to our Leslie Picker. She has been following that hearing on Capitol Hill with the bank CEOs and has an update for us on what's been taking place as we've been following this lawsuit by the New York Attorney General. Leslie? Hey, Scott. Yeah, that hearing in front of the House Financial Services Committee, about two hours underway with seven of the largest consumer-facing bank CEOs answering questions about the broader broader macro environment. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon addressing his views on the economy. He said there was a, quote, small chance of a soft landing. He said there's a chance of a mild recession and a chance of a harder recession. Paying the price of too much fiscal and monetary stimulus. I don't want to second guess all the uh, people doing that. That might have been predictable at the time. They're taking the right action to reverse it. But I don't think you can spend $6 trillion and not expect inflation. And so uh, I don't like to cry over spilled milk. Let's do the things we've got to do to fix all that and then move forward, grow the economy, which is the best way to reduce inflation uh, and help all of our citizens. Ranking member Patrick McHenry began his questioning by asking Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser about the economic consequences of a high inflationary environment. We are very concerned about the high prices that consumers are facing uh, in in America and indeed uh, around the world. Uh, We certainly have lived through very unusual times uh, through the pandemic, through the recovery from that and then the impact Uh, greatly exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. Um, So the impact of of the higher rates um, that are required to try and tame the inflation uh, is likely to be moderating growth in America um, and around the world, uh, and will be putting pressure on um, many of the the drivers of uh, the, the recovery that we've been looking for. Representative Ann Wagner, a Republican from the St. Louis suburbs, pressed U.S. Bank Corp. CEO Andy Ciceri on what inflation and high interest rates might have meant for savings and credit card debt. Ciceri said, quote, inflation is impacting those who can afford it least, while noting that savings levels and credit card spending continue to be above pre-pandemic levels, while payment rates are starting to normalize. Other topics covered today so far include regulations, cybersecurity, racial equity in lending and hiring 
appearing and newer technologies in banking. Scott. Okay. Uh, Leslie, we appreciate that. Uh, and we'll count on you for any updates if you have them throughout mm-hmm. this hour. Uh, it's Leslie Picker joining us there. I mentioned we have Joe Brin, Jason, and Surratt with us today. Of course, our Steve Leisman uh, is with us as well. We have him for a few moments before he gets set to go into the room where it happens uh, later today at 2 o'clock. Steve, I'll begin with you because the big story is this 4% uh, on the two-year, the first time since 07 that we did that. As you pointed out uh, maybe an hour or so ago, the peak Fed funds rate moving to 4.53 percent for April of, of 2023. Um, in a way, the, the two-year is helping the Fed get to where it may want to go. Yeah, and it's, it's going where it may thinks, where it thinks the Fed may want to go here. Uh, Scott, I was just the reason I was uh, looking down, I was doing a little math here. A 300 basis point increase in the two-year note uh, in about a year. Uh, you go back to September 2015, we were at a quarter on the two-year note. And what's interesting is a hundred of that, most of that has come, a hundred of that has come since the beginning of August. So there has been a, uh, a coming to the Lord moment uh, uh, in the bond market in terms of understanding or believing where the Federal Reserve is going to go here. And I've got three H's to give you today, Scott. Uh, they're going high, they're going to hold, and it's going to hurt. I think those are the three essential elements of uh, uh, Powell's speech in Jackson Hole. And I think it's the essential element of what he's going to say today. And the question is going to be how much hurt is the Fed willing to take in terms of the rising unemployment rate, decline in GDP activity uh, that will tell us how far he'll go in terms of raising rates. I'm I'm wondering uh, what sort of specifics we may get today because the uh, the Fed chair, uh, Steve, hasn't always given us uh, the degree to which we've wanted them, uh, you included, of course, with some of the questions that you've asked him at at most recent uh, news conferences. Liz Ann Saunders, who was on a couple hours ago, said the biggest questions for the Fed today, when are you going to get to the destination, right? How high are you going to take the the terminal rate? uh, And how long are you going to stay there? Do do you think we get clear enough ideas uh, to the, the answers to both of those questions today? Maybe a bit on the first question, uh, Scott. I, I, I think there is a range, and I'm going to call it somewhere between 375 and four and a quarter, which I think is noticeably a little bit less than the market uh, is banking on right here, where the Fed may get to, and it may want to look around and give a little time for what they call those long and variable lags to have an effect. Um, I think the Fed believes it needs to get up to that destination. It has an appointment with, with that level. Um, but it may not want to go further immediately. I think it will go further if it feels it needs to. But another 100 basis points, if you go back to that Fed rate outlook chart, is baked in and tightening for the end of the year. Maybe 100 and a quarter, depends on how you measure it. But in any event, you do that, and, and we just talked about how historic this increase has been. Uh, and you know the famous Milton Friedman quote about long and variable lags. Uh, so you get to four and a quarter by the end of the year. It may be a little bit less than that. The Fed may get, go into, a, I want to call it a temporary pause, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a hibernation to see what happens. That will only happen if you get some cooperation in the inflation data and, a, and some softening in the labor data. Uh, in both those situations, the Fed may want to look around and have a, give the uh, effect of what it's done, the historic nature. You know, I, I, I joked with Carl this morning. He said, hey, the Fed coming in for a third 75 base point rate. I guess you said that like it was just kind of like normal. This is uh, abnormal. It's historic, this kind of I- increase. And there's a lot for the market to stomach here. Yeah. I mean, Powell's made the point, too. The ones they've already done, or I think he may have used the words around, uh, you know, unusually large 
uh, right, these yeah. 75 uh, point moves. And here we go. Get set for a number three on that account. Steve, we'll see you later on the TV. Sure. Uh, look forward to that. And we'll, of course, hear from you this afternoon as it all goes down. I, I mentioned I, I do have the gang with us. So, Joe, I I'm coming to you first. Um, so you, you have an idea of what's going to happen today. Th this move in the two year to 4% for the first time since 07, uh, stocks hanging in. What's the message there? Yeah, stocks are hanging in, but I can't remember a time since the great financial crisis when the bond market has been so important as an indicator of where equity is ultimately going to go. Now, if you've got that two year after the Federal Reserve uh, statement today and press conference and it's pricing above 4 uh, percent, that, that's going to act as a headwind for equities to ultimately have a rally. I think the two year without question is going to be the leading indicator. I think the press conference today, as Steve spoke about, is critical is the chairman going to maintain the same disposition of a very hawkish, terse statement that's going to be released before that? If there's any degree of flexibility, if there's any degree of comfort, if there's any degree of leaning towards that the terminal rate's going to be four to four and a quarter percent, Scott, the market isn't positioned for that, and that's where you're going to get the rally. The market right now is overwhelmingly positioned bearishly. It's reflected in all of the CFTC data, which shows that holdings of S&P futures are at their most bearish level since 08, since 11, and since 2015. And you know what happened in each of those three instances. So the press conference to me, absolutely going to be critical. Unless, Bryn, you think the market's getting a little too aggressive, right? We just talked at least when 453 uh, in April of 2023, maybe he says they go 100 more this year. And then in his words, you know, look around, stop, stop and look around. How do you see things heading into the meeting a couple hours time? Uh, two, two things. First of all, on the two year, if investors want to tell going back for a very long time, when the two year not only stops rising, but starts falling and usually around 50 basis points, that has been a very, very good indication of where the terminal rate and the Fed funds rate will be. So right now we're going in the wrong direction, but watch for that over the next you know, three to six months. I think that what, what Steve said with his three, three H's are, are, are spot on. I think the bias after the Fed speaks today is actually to the upside. I do agree with, with, with Joe, there's so much negativity right now. And so I'm not even remotely calling for some long-term rally, but I don't know how much more hawkish Powell could get besides already using words like pain. And so I think if he just continues with the same narrative, I don't think it will be any surprise, and I do think you could have a relief if he mm -hmm. doesn't go even more hawkish than his pain trade. So I think there's a little bit of a bias after he speaks um, to the upside, upside later on today. Yeah, it's like you wrote the, um, the headline of the Wolf Research note today, um, Bryn, because that's what they're talking about. Our sense is that the markets could be set up for a short-lived relief rally if the Fed hikes by 75 and Powell doesn't ratchet up his hawkish uh, rhetoric even further. Jason Snipe, your expectations here? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. I think, you know, for me, it's all about the rhetoric. Joe just mentioned that. I think the commentary is going to be key. Obviously, the 75 basis point uh, move is, is, is priced into the market. I think, and the other piece is, Higher for longer, how long, how high, obviously what, what will the terminal rate be anywhere between four and a quarter and four and a half is obviously starting to get priced into the market. So for me, the market's going to be hanging on to every word uh, that comes out in the presser today. And I think I agree with Brent. I think there might be a bias to the upside, you know, but I think he's going to be terse, 
brief and get right to the point because credibility still remains on the line. Yeah. Surat, do you, do you think we're set up for some sort of relief rally once we get today out of the way? The, the danger, of course, is that the, the chair is more hawkish than uh, we're prepared to hear. Yeah, that is a true danger, and especially, I think, to Jason's point, the credibility here is really at stake. So we've had a little wishy-washy before this. The last one was very strong. I think he continues. Uh, I think he continues to be strong, and the question is, what? how strong is he going to be? And if he maintains the same uh, you know, tone that he did last time, yes, you get a, you get a little bit of relief rally. But if he says, you know, we go 100 points and we don't know when we're going to stop and we don't know where the destination is, I think the market sells off because uh, they're they're really sticking to their guns. Well, I mean, it's hard for him, though, Surat, to be that specific. He's going to say we're, you know, we're, we're doing our 75 today. That's what we think anyway. I'm not going to make make the call until we, we hear it ourselves. Uh, but he's going to likely suggest that they're going to be data dependent and they're going to have to see what the inflation numbers look like, even though it's a lag. Right. Looking at the CPI, as some have pointed out, uh, is looking backwards rather than forward, but at least perhaps gives an idea of, of where the trend is going. The danger as well for investors like all of you, uh, and Surat, I'll throw it back to you, is, is uh, wanting, needing, hoping, and expecting more specificity and not getting it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, we all want that so that we can actually understand kind of where we're going to go. But he's not going to give it to us because they don't really know yet. And they don't want to, you know, get, get stuck into a box because once they do that, then you know everybody's going to be hanging on every word. So I think they'll they'll be they'll be terse and they'll be vague, and we'll kind of have to just keep on waiting for more data uh, to come in. Yeah, I just keep looking at that two-year uh, continues to uh, tick a little higher. So Joe, does that does that put tech most at risk um, in the, in the larger picture? If you think that these moves in interest rates are just getting more steam behind them. Well, I, I, I don't think it's an incentive to step into some of the extreme valuation technology, a lot of the semiconductors, a lot of the software names um, that traded with that just ridiculous valuation over the last several years and didn't have the profitability. So, no, I wouldn't be there. Um, I do have positions, as you know, Scott, I've recently increased my position in Apple. It's now my largest holding, Microsoft. I've talked about those names. I think those are the right technology names to be in, but quite candidly, they're not exactly performing relatively well here in the month of September. So I, I think technology needs to be treated with a very strong degree of discipline, and that discipline is being applied to what's the valuation, uh, because valuations are going to continue to contract if rates are going to move higher. Because, Bryn, I mean, I'm looking at names like Microsoft ticking a little bit higher today. It's giving us 1% in the green. Uh, that stock's been at a 52-week low, making new ones uh, more recently in the days behind us here. Uh, Google as well. You know, Apple's been a question mark. A after a nice burst, uh, it's lost some of that appeal of late too. But uh, what are we to make of these mega caps, right? We can, we can um, make the distinction between the ARC stocks, the ones that Joe's talking about, these higher valuation ones. But what about mega caps, the most heavily owned, most uh, bet on names in this market? Where do they shake out now after what's likely to happen today? So, so I wrote a piece for CNBC in December of 2021 about where we are right now. And it's been a great 10 years for the NASDAQ. And as of the end of 2021, on a rolling 10-year return, the Qs had annualized 20% per year for 10 years. The only other time we even got close to that 
was in the 98, 97, 98, 99 technology um, bubble. And so we've had these 10 years, and what was also the ingredients in those 10 years? QE, zero Fed funds rate. And so now those companies have, you know, over-earned their historical average, and now we're just under-earning. And so that's why, you know, we sold the Qs, and then we, we bought them back, but in JEPQ, so then we could just, I think we will get more money made on selling calls against the queues than actually on the capital appreciation because we've just over earned for 10 years and i just don't think people understand we are just in a different environment now than we were and so prices and pe's need to need to recalibrate and so i think people hoping that these companies are just going to have a v-shaped bounce and we're back off to goldilocks just aren't really understanding what history tells you about where we are in the cycle and where we are with rolling 10-year returns Wow, but Jason, I mean, that's that's a big call. Um, so you got, I mean, Bryn is painting a new, brave new world, uh, in a sense, for these kinds of stocks, right? No QE, uh, no rates at zero. Do I, as an investor now, need to rethink my entire strategy around technology as a result of this brave new world that we are entering into? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, there's a part of, all portfolios that need to be reassessed in this situation. There's been a complete regime shift. I mean, price matters. So if I think about Apple or Microsoft again, you know, Microsoft trading at 24 times, Apple trading at 25 times, you know, it's not the names that Joe talked about, the non-profitable names. I think that the, the thesis on that makes a lot of sense. These are hard names to own in this environment. But yes, you know, when we're, we're, we're moving into a rising environment, you know, in, in a tightening cycle, um, the, the, this is a this is a place where you have to own different names. And to Bryn's point, I mean, these names have have really done well over the last decade. Um, so I think there's room for other areas of the markets, particularly value oriented uh, sectors. I think that could that could uh, do well in this environment going forward. And I think that's really the point that you need to, uh, you know, make sense of as you're kind of reassessing your portfolio and positioning and where you need to be. See, you know, I the issue I have with that, Surat, if, if Jason Snipe tells me that the most tried and true names in the market over the last 10 years are now, in his words, hard to own um, because of this new environment that we're in, rates are expected to go up, and I'm supposed to go to value when rates going up is going to further depress economic activity at a time when the Fed wants that to happen. I'm supposed to go into more value sectors, industrials perhaps, or banks, things like that. Um, does that make sense for, for me to start looking that way? I think as part of a diversified portfolio, absolutely, because the margin of safety is a lot higher in some of the value stocks and financials, industrials, et cetera. Uh, but I do think there is a place in your portfolio for growth stocks that are reasonable valuation. And so take, for example, Microsoft, even though it's trading at 25 times earnings, if Microsoft can grow its earnings, you know, eight to 10% higher than the average growth stock, you're going to have demand for that stock. That's where you really have to pick your stocks, not just say, hey, I'm going to buy this basket, like, like Brent was talking about the Qs. I do think there's opportunity there for the Apples and Microsofts and some of the Googles of the world that if they can out earn their peers, you're really looking at selectivity there. But I do think value is going to be very important, much more so than it has been the last 10 years. But it, it, it hasn't worked. I mean, you know, we've gone through these cross currents where value works one month, uh, growth works one month. But going forward, if rates are going to be at four, 
5% and the Fed's going to keep us there, which we all think is probably going to happen, value's got to be part of your portfolio. All right. So, Joe, you know, there's a stock that we talked about the other day. You highlighted it. Uh, I believe it was on the day that those housing stocks got an upgrade, which we deemed to be controversial. I believe it was a double upgrade um, overweight on a couple of housing names. And we suggested now is now the time to be upgrading with that uh, magnitude of housing stocks when we're worried about what's going on in that in that space. Uh, you mentioned Louisiana Pacific at the time. You did not have a position in it. I know you were looking at it. You have a position now. Um, it got I, downgraded I, I yesterday I certainly morning, do. And, you, and you jumped in, right? $51.60, Louisiana Pacific. Absolutely. Thank you, Bank of America, for the downgrade. This is a second derivative play on housing. I'm not there. I'm with you, Scott. I don't want to step into housing right now when I know the economy is contra going to contract. I know today the chairman is going to be asked about being an active seller of MBS, which is going to put compression on the real estate market and the housing market. So I went to second derivative. It's respectful of valuations. Louisiana Pacific trades at four times. This is a company with a very strong balance sheet. It's well diversified geographically. And it's an example of, I believe, the type of business that's defensively oriented in its industry and defensively oriented businesses right now are exactly what you want to own. I don't know that it's growth or value. It's right now, it's really defense, it's utilities, it's staples, it's healthcare, it's energy. And it's been that way since last December, since the chairman made the announcement of what he was going to do with monetary policy last November, immediately in December, it was healthcare and consumer staples, and the defensive formation took hold in the market, and it hasn't changed ever since. Louisiana Pacific and buying it an example of that type of stock. Yeah, you're sending it higher, too. Uh, just about highs of the day for LPX. You see it there with the 3%. Uh, we'll, we'll call it game. We'll keep our eye on that one. For the remainder of our show, straight ahead right here, we have trades on some of the big analyst stock calls of the day. And one week from today, join the most powerful investment event of the year at CNBC's Delivering Alpha. It returns in person. Can't wait. September 28th. You can meet with economic leaders, policymakers, and the world's best investors. I'm going to be interviewing Citadel's Ken Griffin there. You can scan the QR code on your screen right now and register. Don't miss it. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back uh, to the Halftime Report. Bank of America today has removed Visa from its US-1 list and added PayPal. It's one of our calls of the day. Surat, I want to I go to you first. Um, we've had debates about PayPal a lot lately, right? The stock has gotten clobbered. Is this the right move? Should you, should you add it back and remove Visa at this particular time, given where both of these stocks are? So I like the PayPal addition that we own PayPal. I think, you know, one of the things that we've talked about for, for a long time is PayPal had so much pull forward that happened during COVID and now things have kind of stabilized. So I like that part. I like the Venmo part. I like as, as, as that grows. Uh, I don't agree with the Visa call. I like the Visa MasterCard calls just because as inflation takes hold, Visa MasterCard make more money as, as, as people spend more uh, on their products. So. I mean, there's a valuation issue there with Visa and MasterCard. But again, these are companies that I think are going to outgrow the market and you want to hold these uh, in a diversified portfolio. So Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, all payments and all are going to do well in the next couple of years. Jason Snipe, uh, PayPal, you own it as well. Do, do we feel like this stock is ready for a reset? And I think maybe that's the best word for it. Yeah, so I think. You know, with Elliott getting involved was, was kind of a catalyst for the stock, the cost cutting. Obviously, there's some pressure on margins. The stock, to your point, Scott, has been decimated. It's down over 50 percent. But the multiples come in quite a bit. It's now trading at 23 times forward. They just need to figure out how to, how to monetize, continue to monetize the existing user base and figure out also as well what they're going to do with new business. So, you know, again, I th- for us, it's, it's been a staple in the portfolio. It's our favorite payment stock, even though it's gotten hurt this year. So I think, you know, over the next couple quarters, you could incrementally add to this name um, with, with the pullback that we've seen that over the last really 18 months. So, Bryn, on that point, you say to our producers today, you'll, you'll add more at some point. Uh, the question is, at what point? Right. So, so I'm not I'm not in a hurry because I think of all the things I said I said early. What's interesting about PayPal is I really do think that the Elliott coming in to take a stake was a shift there because prior, the prior two quarters, you know, Dan Schulman or the the C-suite, I felt they were all over the place. Like, are they gonna buy Pinterest? They then came out and said, they're not gonna focus on new users, just monetizing their existing users. And so I felt it was all over the place. And, And the stock is down because everything's down, but I think it was also down for poor execution. So I was really frustrated. This last quarter after Elliott came in, they have a new CFO, which the street really likes. They're doing really nice cost cutting. And so I wanna see what happens this quarter, where we are on that, and if they continue to have good headway, because I'm not in a hurry. I do not think this market's gonna make a V-shaped rally to 4,800 by the end of the year. I'll be patient, mm-hmm. see what happens this coming quarter, and then probably add, add after that. Joe, you don't own it, and maybe you have um, a more critical eye on it uh, than some of the others who, who have this stock, uh, have endured the pain in it. Can you tell me um, why PayPal deserves such a premium to the S&P at this particular time? It's 21 times forward. 
Why does it deserve that? And is it likely to come in even further in the weeks, if not months ahead? So I don't think that PayPal is susceptible to further declines from here. Uh, by the way, Joe T owns PayPal, sold out of it in November of last year. I think the optimism that you can have right now for PayPal comes from the addition of a new CFO, uh, Blake Jorgensen, who was previously at Electronic Arts. And what he introduces is a very aggressive buyback plan that's sorely needed at PayPal. Um, he enacted that back in 2013 for Electronic Arts, and it worked there. I think that's going to be working here for PayPal. Better management of the balance sheet, better return of capital to shareholders. That's your optimism in buying the, the stock. I don't see further downside for PayPal. All right. Uh, straight ahead. We're going to hit the financials today. Uh, the Fed gets ready to raise rates, as you know. You have the hearing down on Capitol Hill. The CEOs are there. And for Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here's CNBC producer Silvana Hanau. When I first came to this country, I only spoke Spanish. Once I learned English, I only wanted to speak English. And my mom really, really made sure that we only spoke Spanish at home to make sure that we held on to our heritage, that we held on to our roots. And I'm so proud of that. I'm really proud that, you know, in a crowd of people, um, I know that I speak two languages, that if someone needs help, I can help them, I can translate for them. And I think throughout life, it's, it's opened a lot of doors for me, especially in my career, given that I'm bilingual. I feel like it really just gives me double the power. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back on the Halftime Report. Let's go to Eamon Javers. He has breaking news for us. Eamon? Scott, we now have a response in writing from the Trump Organization to that lawsuit filed by the Attorney General of the State of New York earlier today against the Trump Organization. The allegation in the lawsuit was that the Trump Organization for years has been inflating the value of its assets and conducting fraud in order to do that. The response here from the Trump Organization now, uh, lengthy and in writing, accuses the Attorney General of waging a years-long political campaign against the Trump Organization, also targeting New York City's increase in crime, offering a number of statistics about crime in the city, saying that she should be focused on that instead of the Trump Organization. And it concludes with this, Scott. They say an attorney general is supposed to be fair, impartial, and unbiased, not weaponize their office to pursue a political vendetta or target their political opponents. Today's filing by Attorney General James sets a dangerous precedent, not just in New York, but for our entire nation. The good people of New York should be disgusted that from the Trump Organization spokesperson today in the response to those uh, that lawsuit filed earlier today by the Attorney General. We'll wait to see how all this plays out uh, legally, but you can already see the political strategy here, Scott, which is to attack this uh, and say that this is all politics. It's all about uh, tarnishing Trump ahead of some potential 2024 presidential activity. We'll wait and see how that all plays out and whether the, pres the former president declares his intent to run again for the presidency of the United States, Scott. Yeah, we'll see if we uh, 
see the former president at some point uh, today uh, responding personally to all of this, too. Uh, Eamon, thank you. That's Eamon Javers uh, outside the United Nations, uh, where he's uh, covering uh, the president's appearance at the uh, General Assembly earlier today. Up next, we have the very latest from those hearings on Capitol Hill. The big bank CEOs are in D.C. today. Plus, Mike Santoli, he just sat down for his midday word ahead of the Fed. So we'll talk to him on what he's thinking about a couple hours from now. Uh, Programming note as well, 10 o'clock Eastern tonight on CNBC. Don't miss an all-new episode of Jay Leno's Garage, a very special episode with a special guest, Elon Musk. Halftime back after this. We know by now the CEOs of major U.S. banks are testifying in Washington, D.C. before the House Financial Services Committee today. Our Leslie Picker joins us now with the highlights we might have missed over the last uh, 35 minutes or, or so. Uh, any fireworks? No fireworks, although the hearing just reconvened after a brief recess. Lawmakers pressing the global banks about their investments in Russia and whether they'd be prepared to stop doing business with China if it were to invade an American ally. The CEOs responded largely by saying they defer to the government for guidance in the event that something like that occurred, noting that it's hypothetical at this point in time. They were also asked if uh, their banks were well capitalized, to which they all said that they were, as made evidence by the Fed stress tests. Uh, earlier in the hearing, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon was asked about post-financial crisis capital requirements and what that meant for lending. So it's not just capital, liquidity requirements, international requirements, Basel requirements, et cetera, do restrict lending, raise the cost of lending, uh, you know, damage markets a little bit, reduce mortgage lending to part of some of our banks. Uh, we want good regulations. I think we need to spend a little more time at recalibrating the effect of these regulations you know, across the whole financial uh, system. So the question there was essentially, Scott, you know, whether there were too stringent capital requirements to um, help people in need when they are looking for, um, you know, to borrow in as the economy faces periods of, of stress. And Diamond's response was basically, look, we've got some pretty stringent capital requirements at this point in time, and it's a good idea potentially to revisit those um, in this post-financial crisis era. Yeah. Leslie, thank you. Uh, always interesting to see the leaders of these large financial institutions on, <laughs> on the Hill uh, taking these questions from members of, of Congress. Never know exactly what's going to take place, whether there will be fireworks or not. Not over yet. We'll see if anything develops over the next couple hours' time. Leslie Picker, thanks uh, to you for that. All right, let's trade the financials, guys. Uh, we do have other news, obviously, that being the Fed. You do have this move, Surratt, higher in interest rates. Uh, you have a considerable amount of exposure here. Bank of America, Blackstone City, First Republic, JPM, U.S. Bank Corp. Look, when you look at interest rates now, and this was something we hadn't factored in before, but as rates keep on going up, the banks are going to make a lot more money on this. They're not really giving anybody high interest rates on their checkings and savings accounts. They're lending, making money on the spread, and also on the investment management business. You know, as people move more to other uh, alternative investments, they make a lot of money. So I think this is a good tailwind for all the banks, especially the ones that are money-centered banks and the wealth management banks. Do you agree with that, Jason Snipe, who also owns Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, the XLF, the KRE, along with 
PNC Financial? Is this a good time to buy bank stocks? You have the conflicting stories, right? I got higher rates, I got worries about the economy. Which rules the day for these stocks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Scott, I mean, obviously, these banks are well capitalized. I mean, that, I'll, I'll start there. But I think there's, there's, a, there's still a lot of headwinds here. You know, higher rates, you know, slower demand potentially on, on, on loan demand and commercial loan demand. I think that's a concern. Obviously, the IBO, IPO market has, has shrunk, you know, so there's not a, not a lot of issuance there at all. Um, so, so for me, I think it, it is a play. I agree with Sherrod on the kind of the net interest income piece. I think that's an opportunity. But here where we are late cycle, you know, sometimes financials are, are likely not the best place to be. If this potential recession is slow and, and shallow and, and not, you know, pervasive, I think, yeah, you could kind of inch back into this, some of these names. But I think right now they, they've been a hole for us, not overly excited about the sector here. Nor are you, Joe. And I mean, how can you be overly excited at a time where one of the generals of the industry, Jamie Dimon himself, is in D.C. today and said there's a small chance of a, of a soft landing, that you could have a mild recession? I can't imagine in I, either one of those scenarios that these stocks are going to all of a sudden take off. So I said to Patty, our, our producer before the show, I have tepid enthusiasm surrounding financials. Obviously, I have ownership of Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. And I think I've, I've set forth for myself, Scott, a reasonable expectation on these companies. I'm not going to see the type of revenue growth that potentially I'm going to get from consumer discretionary or I'm going to get from technology. But I am going to see the strength of the balance sheet. I am going to see also a degree of resiliency. Let's keep in mind that in Q3, Financials are actually outperforming the S&P. They're up 4%. So I think it's about setting a reasonable expectation. That's what I'm doing here. That's where the tepid enthusiasm comes for. If you're looking for more growth potential and a potential higher beta exposure as markets rally, you go second derivative. You look at the exchanges like CME or ICE or you go to the asset managers. I gave as a final trade the other day Charles Schwab. Uh, in addition, you could look at T. Rowe Price. I think that's where you're going to get a little bit more of the growth opportunity. But I, given the current climate, I don't think you could have, uh, uh, you have to set a realistic expectation for the big banks. Well, Brent, I mean, I think that's a good point that Joe makes. And if, you know, the, one of the top banking analysts, Mike Mayo, was here himself, he would probably say what he has in the past, that this is a better environment right now for Main Street banks versus Wall Street banks. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah. I like the way Joe's, I like the way Joe's um, positioning it, and I, I, I agree with I agree with Joe. I mean, I have a small position in Goldman, but here's the issue. I have two issues. First of all, like loan growth, it's all relative. We have an inverted to flat yield curve. That is not good for the banking environment. You can't you can't lend on the short end that has a higher rate than the long end. That doesn't make any make make any sense. And then. I do believe in the economic cycle, and I do believe we are late stage economic cycle. And where Joe said earlier, when we were talking about value and growth, he doesn't look at that. He doesn't look at it that way, and I don't either. He's looking at defensive, where you want to own consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare. When you are late stage, it is like textbook. You don't want to have an overweight to financials. And so, for those reasons, I have a small position in Goldman. We sold our ETF SVAL. 
um, that had a 45% regional bank exposure, because I can guarantee you this, Scott, the Fed will be successful in not only slowing but stalling the economy. And that is just not a good universe for financials to outperform. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Mike Santoli is here for his midday word. You think the two-year might be on his mind? We'll find out next. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Counting down, of course, to the Fed. One hour, 12 minutes, just about even. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, joins us now for his midday word. I mentioned uh, I can't imagine the two-year 401 is not on your mind like everybody else's today. Yeah, and it reflects uh, markets bracing for some impact. Uh, The two-year note yield dollar index at a new high. So clearly we're kind of edging toward the the idea that we know we're getting at least three-quarters of a percent. Um, maybe you're building in some anticipation it could be slightly more hawkish, whether it's the uh, number or the, the outlook stocks. You know, they're about 1% above the low for each of the past three days. Past three days, intraday low was basically 38.30 plus or minus a couple of points. So you're 1% above that, but right around a two-month low. So to me, that tells you it's not as if stocks have puffed themselves up in anticipation of some great relief, even if you've t- typically gotten a little bit of a quick reflex relief trade no matter what happens during the Fed. And then the question is, does it hold or does it fail? You've had a great ability throughout the years to put yourself sort of in the mind of the market, uh, if you will. What do you make of what Lizanne Saunders suggested this morning when she was on the, the key questions, the, the time it takes to get to the right. ultimate destination, like, Mom, Dad, when are we going to get there? Yes. And then how long are we going to stay? Um, how much clarity do you think the market needs to get from those two questions today? Market is, is inherently impatient, and in this case, more so. And I think that being uh, in a position to say, within the next several months, we're probably at the destination in terms of the rate level. In terms of being there for a longer period of time, I think we have to absorb that possibility. And more specifically, what's acceptable in terms of economic weakness for the Fed to get up there and stay up there and maybe even lean toward uh, adding to hikes after they pause. Because that, to me, is going to be in, in some of the dot plot today. Where's unemployment going based on their uh, projections? Because that, that, to me, gets to the, the crux of it. How much are they willing to take the starch out of the economy? How much of it uh, to, to, to achieve the goal? There was that article, what was it, yesterday in the journal of Timoros suggesting they're, they're content the Fed chair is That's with right. a, a mild recession at this point. There's no doubt no about other it. way out of it. There's no doubt that they are that they they probably have it as a base case, not playing for it necessarily. Uh, if they feel as if they can just sort of soften up the labor market enough and have wages decelerate and and have this sort of immaculate uh, slowdown in inflation, fine, that'd be great. But I don't think that's necessarily how it's uh, scripted at this point. Speaking of the journal, I'm looking at it. I, it all plays into the same story. I'm looking at a headline here. Uh, Meta, the former Facebook, is looking to trim costs by at least 10 percent in the coming months. Sources telling the journal for a story that's moving right now. It sort of plays into what's ahead for the labor market yep. and what we can anticipate. Thanks. I'll see you in a few. Yep. That's Mike Santoli. We'll see him later on for his last word. Of course, we have more trades straight ahead right here.
told you about that flash headline uh, just a few moments ago, resulting in a move right there for shares of Meta. The former Facebook spiking there. Wall Street Journal reporting the company is looking to trim costs by at least 10 percent in the coming months. The stock did hit a new 52-week low earlier today. Surat, you, know, you and Bryn both own it, so I'll lean on both of you here. Uh, Bryn to you. Actually, I'm sorry, Surat. I, I was going to you first. My apologies. Uh, what's your read of this news? Uh, it is causing uh, the stock to rise. Look, I think Facebook came out with these huge expectations of growth in terms of how much we're going to spend, you know, billions of dollars into the meta. Uh, and I think this is a good thing. It's, it's raining in costs is really important as we go into, uh, you know, potential advertising slowdown as well. So uh, to me, it looks like the company is making the right moves here, uh, cutting costs and focusing, you know, on operational uh uh, you know, expertise. So I think it's good. Uh, they have to deliver. It's been it's been an ugly stock. It's been one of our worst performers. Uh, but I do uh, believe there's a lot of value there. And I'm still a holder and a buyer uh, at these levels. See, Bryn, I can think of, you know, OK, reigning in costs is one thing. Reigning in costs when you need to spend for what you've determined the future of your company to be. You've sold investors on that vision. Uh, and it is a long-term vision. So if you're reining in costs now, does it prolong the runway of getting to your vision? Right, I mean, I've told you before, I'm more of a tourist in this stock. I bought it probably 30 points ago. And it's been like, this is a textbook to me, growth name that's become a value trap, right? I can't, I got, I got sucked into it, right? The stock had a low PE and now the PE's, I wanna say a 15 times forward. It just continues to go lower. And so how can they continue to spend 10 billion a year for this metaverse? I have air quotes here, metaverse, yet reigning in cost. So I, so I agree with you. Um, I'm more looking as year end, as the year comes, as the year end comes, whether I'll do like tax law selling on this, because it's just been such a poor performer. Even when the tech, when tech rallies, it just doesn't rally. And so I just think you need to have a total resetting of the table with expectations to get investors to come back to this name. Otherwise, I think it's going to be a value, a growth value trap, which, which are just painful to own because you don't want to miss that move if you, if you do see tech starting to turn around and you don't get it here, that's such a shame. Yeah, it's been a rough year, yeah. uh, no doubt, uh, for investors in Meta. We'll take a break, guys. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Got a big overtime today with that man right there, Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock, reacting his first word uh, in reaction to the Fed, what they do, what they say. Uh, we'll see you in a few hours' time. I hope you'll join me there. Let's do final trades, guys, in the minute that we have left. Jason Snipe, please go first. Yeah, Scott, I like AutoZone here. Nice beat on the top and bottom line. Comps were up 6.2%. I like it here. Okay. Bryn? I'm going to give you a cover call idea. You can buy Devin here, sell the January 23, 75 strike cover calls. You collect $4.50, which is a 7% yield, plus you get a 2% dividend in December. So it's like a 9% income for the next five months, even if the stock does nothing. Okay. Surat? Uh, going back to Morgan Stanley, trading at uh, 10 times earnings, a 3% dividend yield. You got the margin of safety here. Uh, I think management's really focused on their businesses, and I, and I like the stock. Okay. Joe, uh, his shot's frozen, uh, but he's choosing the CBOE. So you don't get Joe, but you get the name, uh, most important of all. I'll see everybody in overtime. Look forward to it. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.